questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the podcast that helps you close the gap between what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. Welcome to another episode. Today on the program, I am talking with a man who is fast becoming a friend, even though we have never met face-to-face. He is Dr. Chuck DeGroat, who is a professor of counseling and Christian spirituality at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. He's the co-founder and senior fellow of the Newbigin House of Studies in San Francisco. Prior to going to Western Theological Seminary, he was a teaching pastor at the City Church in San Francisco, where he co-founded the Newbigin House of Studies, which is an urban and missional training center that offers graduate degrees through Western Theological. Chuck has started two counseling centers, a lay counseling program, and he is the author of several books, including Leaving Egypt, Finding God in the Wilderness Places, The Toughest People to Love, which is a book that focuses on how leaders and pastors can care for the most difficult people that they encounter, and then a book that we actually discuss in this conversation and the second, part two, Uh, That book is called Wholeheartedness through Urban's Press, and that is a book that brings a vision for wholeness in the midst of our brokenness and humanity, specifically with an emphasis on wholeheartedness in the midst of a shame-based culture. And Chuck also has a forthcoming book on narcissism in the church, which we were originally going to discuss uh, several months ago when we did an online interview And for some reason, technology failed us, and that wonderful conversation did not record. So perhaps this conversation is the one that you needed to hear. To learn more about Chuck and his programs and his books, you can visit his website, and I'll spell his last name for you in just a minute, but it is chuckdegroat.net. And so it's Chuck, and then last name D-E-G-R-O-A-T, chuckdegroat.net. You will enjoy our conversation because Chuck is so easy to talk to and such a depth of knowledge as we jump in now to talk about wholeheartedness and Christian spirituality with Dr. Chuck DeGroat. Dr. Chuck DeGroat, welcome back to the Restoring the Soul program. We've talked before for a conversation, but we had technology problems and it did not record. It's good to be back. I hate technology problems. Yeah, so do I. But we do our best to plan ahead, and you never know. But will you start out? I did an introduction at the top of the podcast, but will you tell me and tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you what you do? Because you wear a lot of different hats. I do, and I have uh, my bio. Uh, says something like I've, you know, for the last 20 years, I've worked at the intersection of, of pastoral ministry, clinical counseling, uh, seminary training. Um, I've led retreats. Uh, I do some spiritual direction. I, I've really had this wonderful privilege to be both, uh, well, to be a pastor uh, at a couple of different churches, a pastor of spiritual formation. So in other words, doing the work of discipleship and formation with people. Um, at those two churches, I was able to start uh, counseling centers. And so I've got this entrepreneurial side that 
uh, is, is kind of fun to nurture too. Um, and I've also been able to wear my clinical counselor hat, but then, you know, in the meantime, in my spare time, I've gotten to writ- write some books. Uh, I get to do a little bit of spiritual direction retreat leading. And now for the last almost six years, which is hard to believe, I've been a seminary professor at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. So, yeah, I, and I kind of like it. I kind of like being engaged in a variety of different things, uh, not too much to keep me from presence to my family, to the folks that I, uh, I minister to and serve with here, but um, enough to keep me um, uh, pretty happy. <laughs> Well, yeah, and happy because it sounds like you get to do uh, a lot or many of the things that you really love doing as opposed to, you know, doing a day job and then having to do a bunch of stuff on the side. Yeah, I think I'd, uh, I think I would be bored to tears uh, if that was the case, but this allows me to uh, do a few different things. And I, I mean, I, I do think it's, it's a real privilege at this stage of life now to be teaching pastors, you know, having pastored to be uh, to be working among you know students as young as 22 years old, so I guess 26 years younger than I am, and uh, and to be sort of pouring into the next uh, group of leaders in the church. That's kind of fun. You have a reputation with students, and I know this because you and I crossed paths a number of years ago through some seminary students. Uh, mutually know, but your reputation is that you get involved in the lives of the students and you care about their hearts and not just uh, educating them on something like systematic theology. And um, I'm curious with, with that level of giving in your work as a professor, as well as counseling work you do, how do you stay grounded and balanced and centered and connected to God and to others? when you're doing juggling so many different things. Yeah. I wrote about this some in a a book that came out maybe two or three years ago called Wholeheartedness. Um, And in that, I tell the story of uh, a number of years ago now when I did hit a wall. And this would have been probably when, when I was doing some teaching and pastoring with maybe some of the students that you know. Uh, I hit a wall. I was pushing too hard. Classic over-functioner. And so um, I was over-involved in people's lives, and it was around that time that I was listening to uh, an audio presentation by a poet named David White, and David White was talking about wholeheartedness, and he talked about a conversation with his spiritual director who said at one point, the antidote to exhaustion is not necessarily rest, the antidote to exhaustion is wholeheartedness. And I remember uh, I was listening to it while I was driving down the road, and I had to pull over. I was so stunned by that quote. And I went on this journey of sorts, experiential journey of discovering wholeheartedness, because there was a sense of of working really, really hard, over-functioning way too much, and then just trying to do rest. You know, like I'm going to do rest on Saturday. <laughs> and it wasn't working for me. And so wholeheartedness has something to do with living life uh, quorum deo in the presence of God, living life um, every moment with a sense of presence. And that requires uh, some classic spiritual disciplines like contemplative prayer, practicing the presence of God. Um, So in other words, even when you're engaged and active as you and I are, you know, and, and I know 
I know a little something of you and all the different hats that you wear and the things that you do. It's, it's a matter then of, for me, even before a conversation like this, sitting down and breathing and getting present instead of saying, I'm doing work right now. And then, you know, after this, I'll rest. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes total sense. And uh, David White, man, if, if, if a person listening has never read David White's poem, Self-Portrait, uh, mm. you'll either send me hate mail and say I'm not a Christian, or, or you'll say <laughs> that poem speaks to me. So I love, yeah. love his stuff, and I'm jealous. Yeah. Uh, you heard that live, or was that a... Uh, oh, no, no, no. I, I was actually given, um, I was given a CD if the kids listening remember what CDs are, <laughs> I was given a CD called The Poetry of Self-Compassion. And this was probably in 2002, 2003. And uh, this was a recording of him. Uh, it sounds like he's in probably a pub somewhere in Wales. Um, and he's, he's, uh, he's a Welsh poet and uh, Irish Welsh, I think. And, and he's just kind of talking live and off the cup about some of his favorite poems and, how they connect with life. And so, and he told that beautiful story in it. So yeah, that really makes sense. Will you say it one more time yeah. about rest? Yeah. Wholehearted? Yeah. The antidote. Yeah. The antidote to exhaustion is not necessarily rest. The antidote to exhaustion is wholeheartedness. So from that point forward, as you began to realize that in this busy calling of ministry and giving to others that it involves some of those things like practicing presence and contemplative prayer. What was it like for you to begin to move into that more? Because that's, that can be in the world of ministry and caregiving that can be like swimming upstream against the tsunami. Yeah, that's a good picture. Yeah. And I would say that it came in fits and starts and probably more fits than anything else. Um, in part because of my own, my own stuff, my own self-sabotage. I mean, I think um, contemplative prayer in particular is always the first thing to go when, when I wake up in the morning and I've got a busy day ahead of me. Um, and, then, and then there have been seasons, I think, and particularly uh, in, in my ministry years where I pushed and pushed and pushed, and it would be a month or two months or five months before I realized that I hadn't been present all the while. And so I think that you know, classic disciplines like contemplative prayer uh, require um, require practice. It's it's sort of like you develop a muscle memory over time. Um, it, you develop the muscles of contemplative prayer, and then you recognize that your soul really craves presence. and And all of these other things are are uh, that we get engaged in. Um, you and I have worked with people who are addicted to pornography, for instance, or people who are addicted to video gaming or who watch, you know, five, six, eight hours of Netflix a day, they're substitutes for real presence. Not, not necessarily bad in and of themselves. Uh, when I'm thinking of Netflix or video games or something like that, but substitutes to real presence. And so as you practice disciplines like uh, the practice of presence, the presence of God, contemplative prayer, in a sense, you become hungry for presence. You really long to show up in every conversation, in every arena of life, in, in your family life and in your work life. Um, but for me, it's been a lot of stumbling over myself and realizing that I've really been not very present, pretty angry, kind of addicted, 
um, and and call, being called back by God, being called back to presence. I really appreciate you being so authentic about that. And I know that's one of your kind of values and way that you do life. But I just want to say uh, to anybody who's listening right now, if you're in any kind of a ministry or vocation where you're giving to others, I just want to uh, give, give people permission to uh, to know that in this this world that we live in, it is so easy to fake it. <laughs> and I, I don't mean to fake it like pretending that you're something you're not, but to uh, to give out of giftedness and to give out of uh, flexed muscles as opposed to uh, a life that's actually experienced. And gosh, so much of the time I find myself going, wow, how long has it been since I have done uh, contemplative prayer or just sat yeah. quietly and breathed. Yeah. I mean, I, I think probably f- for us now, we've lived a little bit longer and we've done this for a while. And, and I mean, I could sort of chart back and, and I don't look at it as a series of successes. I see it as, um, I, I'm not saying this in a self-critical way. I, I see all the ways that I have lived with clenched fists and stumbled along the way and tried to do it and thought, you know, I can, I can push through it. I can get through this day. I've got the energy to do that project or fix that person or see more clients than I'm capable of seeing. And, uh, and one of the things I, I, I wonder what you, how you've experienced this, but I, I've just recognized now in my late forties, how fragile I am at some level. And um, that I, I've always sort of prided myself in all the things that I can do. And, um, and I'm pretty needy. And I need time. I need to be uh, still and be present and breathe um, or else I'm in a sort of chronic trauma loop and operating out of uh, reactivity and anxiety more than I am out of presence. Well, my, my experience of that is so similar and I'm going to be 55 this summer. And I do think part of it is aging physiologically where there's less capacity but i would th- i'd like to think that a little bit of it is self-awareness and wisdom yeah, yeah that, right that yeah. is, is it, it's not good for my soul i remember right. i don't know if it was peterson or willard who spoke about certain rhythms and paces are actually violence to our soul so much of my life has been running on adrenaline versus mm-hmm. actual energy and energy is something that requires nourishment that we have to stop and eat. And there's a spiritual equivalent of that as well. That is not simply Bible, but it's being in presence. And if I'm not doing that, then I'm running on adrenaline and that leads to the trauma loop you spoke of. That's right. Uh, Can I read a quote real quick from Thomas Merton that I think gets to this? Um, He says, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone and everything, is to succumb to violence. Mm. And uh, that that was was one of those lines that I read that I thought, you know, I like to read books and and think that I'm reading to educate myself about how to fix other people. (laughs) But... That one hit me right square in the eyes. Like that is your life. You're carried about into a multitude of too many concerns. And, and uh, you know, just last semester here at the seminary, I found that it was happening again. And um, 
uh, I was injecting myself into some, some things as, as a kind of, in my mind, a non-anxious presence who was trying to help, uh, help people hear one another. And I had a friend say to me, Chuck, what's going on with you? You just seem like you're struggling. And I said, no, 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 I'm helping. You know, I'm doing well. And it was a couple of months later in early January that I realized, no, I'm actually pretty angry, pretty resentful, um, pretty disconnected. And I just fell into the same pattern again. Yeah, gosh. And, you know, we we sometimes just look at these issues, whether it's disconnection or anger or sadness or emptiness. And if they manifest in a negative way toward others, they may have an element of sin. But it's uh, it's often the case where in my ministry, I, I'll say to people, well, why do you think you're angry? And, well, I'm just sinful. Mm-hmm as opposed to the uh, fact that we're not actually tending to our souls the way that we would tend yeah. to a vegetable garden. Yeah. Um, yeah. Say more about tying that thought in where you came to the conclusion that you were angry and disconnected. Connect that to the trauma loop that you referred back to a minute ago, because that's really a physiological experience that, yeah. Our spirituality and our emotional well-being flows out of that. It's physiological. It's neurobiological, you might say. Um, I call it sometimes for my students' life on the hamster wheel. And we become addicted to the adrenaline. We become addicted to the, the pace, um, to the brain chemicals that are firing. Um, and uh, it's, it's also a way, that, that addictive, compulsive way of living is also a way of keeping us from the real pain that we feel um, beneath or the real shame we feel beneath. I know for me living on that trauma loop on that hamster wheel and going and going and going reactively has been a way of not facing my sense of shame, fear, limitation, fragility. Um, so if I, I, I can keep myself believing that I've got something to offer the world if I just stay on, uh, stay on the hamster wheel. Mm. That word fragility is really resonating with me today, and I'm not entirely sure what that's about, but how do you experience that um, when you start to yeah. feel that way? Yeah, I experience it both as um, something shameful and as gift, and I guess what I mean by that is um, uh, weakness was not, a valued, uh, was not a value in my home growing up, and um, uh, we were we didn't have very much money, and uh, my mom in particular really wanted us to overcome, if that makes sense. And um, and so uh, this sense that there would be anything uh, about me that might be weak or fragile or needy or those might not be precise synonyms, but anything like that was was not really valued. And so there was some shame around that. I think um, I've discovered in time. And I, I, you know, I wrote a little Lent book a couple of years ago, and I talk about this a lot in there, that um, that the real fragility is, in, in a sense, it's a returning to our limitation. It's returning to the dust. You know, the season of Lent begins on Ash Wednesday with the words, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And um, th- there's nothing about that that is uh, God saying, you're a piece of crap. It's, it's God saying, you're limited. Um, you're fragile. You're... Um, you're humus, you're of the earth, you're humble, you're only human, um, and, thus, and, and thus you're limited. You can't do everything. And I think that that's been a real gift to discover, that there's, there's nothing to be ashamed about, that I, um, 
that I'm fragile, that sometimes people will say things to me that um, cut to my core and, uh, and provoke a, or trigger a feeling of shame. Um, nothing wrong with me. That's a very human response. It hurts. Ouch. <laughs> you know, so it's embracing that as gift um, in, instead of shame. Say more about the embracing it as gift, because this is a theme through your writing and your teaching as well, whether it's vulnerability or weakness. But on the surface, it doesn't feel like being fragile is gift. No, on the surface, it doesn't. And I think on the, on the surface, when we, haven't, when we haven't done the work, we're just, we're just surviving, right? We're in that trauma loop we were talking about a moment ago. And when, when we're living from the surface, so to speak, um, when we're living, as, as uh, you and I probably say sometimes, above the waterline, you know, not, not connected to our own hearts, to our own stories, to our own sense of self. Uh, yeah, we are, we are just surviving. And so fragility feels like, uh, well, that feels like a threat, you know, the, the threat that I might, um, uh, might be seen as weak, the threat that I, I might, um, I might stumble and fall, the threat that I might, um, not do as well as I should do, um, that for my students, I might get a C on the paper instead of an A, that I might, um, not, not preach a sermon as well as I could. That's a really scary feeling. And so, um, we'll do anything to, in a sense, to, to, um, uh, to keep fragility at bay. Um, and that's just then keeping up appearances. You know, that's the tyranny of the false self, as Thomas Merton puts it. That's just making sure that people see us as stable and, and apparently secure. And it's just an illusion. And, and the truth is, is underneath the surface, we're all scared. Um, we're all needy. Uh, we're all terrified at times. We're all enraged at times. We're all ashamed at times. And if we were to just um, acknowledge that, go beneath the waterline and begin to acknowledge that complexity of emotions within, we might discover more treasures than just discovering our fragility or limitation. We may discover uh, some other gifts as well in there. So one way of thinking about this would be that coming to this uh, awareness of our fragility is actually a doorway into the wholeheartedness that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit, right? There is this death to life cycle and this falling to the ground that is necessary. And um, um, I remember early on, one of my supervisors, when I was in my counselor training program, uh, I was working with an addict and I was just trying to fix him. And she said, maybe he needs to drown. <laughs> you know, uh, she wasn't she wasn't as scared as the fall as I was. And I think some, sometimes it's the gift of, of the failure, the gift of the fall, the gift of the screw up, the limitation. The, um, and I don't know about you, but I live my life to sort of keep those things at bay so that I could be seen as competent and put together and um, uh, winsome and unique and thoughtful and all these different kinds of things. And uh, I just, maybe I just don't have the energy for that anymore. Yeah, I, it's that same idea where I'm certainly not there. I'm certainly not uh, beyond right, right. or adrenaline addiction or trauma yeah. loops. But yeah. There, is, yeah. there is a certain exhaustion about it where there's just an increasing awareness that it's not only that it doesn't work or pay off the way that I once hoped it would, but where uh, it just works against my soul and what I want. Yeah. 
That's right. I mean, I think this notion of wholeheartedness, I mean, wholeheartedness is about, um, you know, the, the idea is born out of the beatitude um, in Matthew 5, blessed are, are the pure in heart for they will see God. Um, the pure in heart um, are, are those with undivided hearts. In other words, their attention isn't being pulled in this direction, in this direction, in this direction. They're right here and they're right now. They're present. And I think when we're in trauma, we are pulled in all sorts of competing directions. We are, we're not able to live in the present moment. And for many trauma counselors, the present moment is really the antidote to uh, trauma, the antidote to exhaustion. It's getting back in touch with your body, um, your physicality, your, your, um, the beat of your own heart, um, the places where you hold the trauma in your body, your breath, um, things like that allow you to ground again and to reconnect again. And so, and that's where you meet God too. That's why wholeheartedness is not merely a, a sort of a secular concept in a sense. It's like, that's precisely where God is. Um, God meets us right there in the present moment. Um, and in fact, the way I like to put it, because I've been in, influenced by the contemplative spiritual writers is that um, God never left. God is always home. And it's sort of like when we return to the ground of our own being, to the present moment, God was there all the while saying, I've been waiting for you. It's okay. Welcome back. I'm here. That's, that's a beautiful thought. I'm pretty constantly quoting Martin Laird, author of Into the Silent Land, who was just here oh, yeah. just so good. Saturday. Um, and I was uh, supposed to interview him, but it didn't work out at the last minute. So down the road. Uh -huh. But in Into the Silent Land, uh, Father Laird says that the greatest illusion that we hold is that union with God is something that we have to acquire or attain. Now, that will raise controversy for people in terms of whether that happens, you know, for believers or unbelievers, but it's that idea that God is always there and present and he's waiting for us. You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at RestoringTheSoul.com. You already know we live in a pornified world, but most of us are at a loss for how to navigate this sea of temptation. It's either ceaseless striving on the one hand or giving in to brokenness on the other. But doesn't the gospel offer us another way? The truth is that our sexual struggles are not actually about sex, but about a misdirected, God-given longing for deep connection. Dig deeper in my book, Surfing for God, Discovering the Divine Desire Beneath Sexual Struggle. 